In this episode, Ian Costain and I talk about pension freedoms and non-advised retirement income, investment pathways and consumer protection, how to deliver effective help to consumers and whether the FCA is in fact doing a decent job. Ian also proposes a revolution which we have tentatively penciled in for some time after September this year. I'm taking your 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 uh, compliance and goodwill for granted, Ian, and we are now <laughs> recording. Look, you you dialed into this, so I'm assuming you're willing to be recording. Well, absolutely. <laughs> so so there we are. I was really struck last time we talked. We've spoken a couple of times towards the end of last year about all the work that you've done around pension freedoms and investment pathways, annuities draw down advice and guidance, all that kind of stuff. And, and you, you've done a huge amount of work, both consumer-facing research yeah. um, and looking at the regulatory side of stuff. So I was, I was just really keen to talk to you. I thought just, just as kind of an opener, just to get a sense of, of where you're at in there, 2014-2015, pension freedoms, good thing, bad thing? What, what's your take on that? Yeah, I mean, generally, freedom, flexibility, feels like it's got to be a good thing, doesn't it? I think that, you know, we'll we'll come on to talk about some of the challenges that go along with that. But most certainly um, a good thing to have choice and, uh, and flexibility. Who can argue against that? We live in an industry where consumer protection is is paramount and it's absolutely necessary. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it, it's the things that go along with that, I think, that we perhaps want to, to talk a little bit about today. So, yeah, principle then, I mean, you know, politically it was a masterstroke, wasn't it? And and also just the fact they managed to keep it a secret was quite impressive because usually yeah. with these things, you know, uh, you, you get a hint that something's in the wind. And I don't think anyone really saw the whole announcement in March 2014 coming. But yeah. part of the consequence of that was, you know, the FCA was blindsided as well. And it feels like they've spent the last five years playing catch up, as has the TPR, Pensions Regulator. And just, you know, to your point, how we protect consumers with, with this freedom, because, I mean, it's hard enough for financial advisors to manage drawdown pots safely and effectively and efficiently over an unknown period of time with unknown future investment returns. For consumers to do that, as many of them do on their own without advice, is... Always going to be a challenge, isn't it? Absolutely. I think we certainly wouldn't have non-advised drawdown in the way that it is today were it not for the pension freedoms. Mm. And, you know, sticking to begin with just just on the non-advised side, consumers are in the main ill-equipped to make these really rather complex and also important financial decisions. And therefore, you know, absolutely right, I think that the FCA comes at this from a consumer protection perspective. And, you know, I have a great deal of sympathy for for the FCA in in this respect, because obviously pension freedoms, as we said, are are a construct of the Treasury. So, yeah, these were very much kind of foisted on on the FCA. So they've got to deal with um, the hand they've been dealt with, really. I mean, you know, in utopia would be that everyone got regulated financial advice because, you know, that would be a good thing. But A, it's not feasible. And B, you know, nor 
can the FCA politically obviously row back on on the pension freedoms that have been introduced. So I think that the way that it's come at this in terms of the Investment Pathways Initiative is exactly the right direction to be coming at it in, in the sense of being able to do something that is meaningful in terms of helping consumers. I find it interesting that even though the Treasury has taken steps to try and facilitate access to financial advice, you know, you've got that advice allowance that's available now, that withdrawal that yeah. can be made, employers can support that. Still, there's a lot of people not using it. That's not widely taken up. And it feels as if there's a reluctance on the part of consumers to even engage with the advice process, even though steps have been taken to try and make it more available to them. Perhaps, yes. I think it, it's... Uh a little about the unknown, but also obviously commercially, consumers with you know relatively small funds are, are not commercially attractive for a financial advisor to be dealing with it, or, or equally for a consumer to be paying for. So, you know, I, I think that it's understandable. I think in in terms of where we find ourselves in in terms of these vast numbers of consumers going into to non-advised drawdown, mm. it does very much feel like. Uh, an accident waiting to happen. And therefore, you know, from, from that perspective, I, I think, as I say, the, the investment pathways are, are definitely a, a step in the right direction. So how good are the pathways as a solution? A step in the right direction, a good step? How much more should they do? What, what, what's your sense around that? Well, yeah, I, I mean, it's slightly a, a step into the unknown, of course, in, in terms of investment pathways being new to the market, but but also a, a kind of intervention from the FCA that, that, that is slightly different to the norm. I'm warmed by the, the consumer research. So, before the investment pathways were, were launched, the FCA themselves carried out significant consumer research. But also, there was an interesting piece of consumer research published, I was going to say earlier this year, earlier last year, <laughs> by Legal and General that was carried out by NMG Consulting on consumer research. So, so they surveyed 1,200 consumers and they found that 90% of them found a pathway that matched their needs. So, you know, the, the fact that the FCA has introduced these outcome-focused objectives in terms of these four pathways feels very much like it, it's the right thing. I say 90% of consumers found one that was a good match to their needs. And also two-thirds of consumers as well were very positive about them. So, you know, there will be a lot of learnings from these. Obviously, as I say, it's a new initiative, but it does feel like it's a proportionate first step in terms of, of protecting consumers, protecting non, you know, non-advised consumers. And presumably the bulk of consumers are either going to go for the, I just want my tax-free cash and I'm not going to touch it for the next five years. I don't need an income now. I just, I just want a lump of money. Mm. Or they're going to go for the, I'm going to be taking a regular income within the next five years. And that relatively, for, you know, the, the other two pathways, if I'm going to buy an annuity or I'm just going to take all my money out, feel less relevant than those first two. Is that, do you think that's fair? Yeah, I, I think that's, uh, again, it's, um, I'll refer to the consumer research I just mentioned. So, so that kind of explored amongst these 1,200 consumers which pathway they were going to go for. And 70% effectively went for income generation. So that 70% was made up of 46% for pathway three, 
which is the uh, income drawdown, and 24% for pathway two, which is the annuity. So yeah, 70% saying that that you know they saw their objective as a long-term income. And the other bit that's kind of quite interesting in this space is the FCA data in terms of what consumers are doing, and they publish their latest wave, so to speak, just last month in December. Now, clearly, we've got to take this data with a little bit of a pinch of salt because obviously, we don't know what other savings consumers have got. And and, and obviously, there will be many relying on, continuing to rely on defined benefit provision. There's obviously the state pension consumers may have other savings as well. But actually, that data does seem to indicate that income's being taken at levels which are not sustainable. So, looking at what I would call larger pension pots, so ignoring obviously the, the, the fairly small ones. So, so, looking at those who've got a pot of 100,000 or more, okay. the data shows that 23% are taking an income of 8% or more. <laughs> That's quite an optimistic number, so, isn't it? <laughs> so, yeah. But as I say, we, we don't know. That, that shouldn't set alarm bells because we kind of don't know what other provision they, they may have. But it is indicating just a little that income may be being taken at an unsustainable level. Well, and that was that was always one of my reservations when the, the pathways were first mooted, was that they were only one half of the equation, you know, that it's all very well, you can have the best investment strategy in the world, but without some guidance around the income withdrawal strategy as well, there's always the risk that, you know, the investments will perform well, but I still run out of money in 18 years' time because I was taking... Six, seven, eight percent a year out, and that was not sustainable. So, you know, what are your thoughts around that, and what guidance people need around the sustainability of income withdrawal rates? Because that yeah. feels harder. Yeah, I personally think it's incumbent on investment pathway providers to communicate the sustainability of income to consumers, and, and yeah, that. That's not too difficult to do, but it does appear because I have done some kind of initial research across the market of of what product providers have been doing. Very, very little that helps consumers regarding this very point. As, as I mentioned, hmm. you know, forty forty six percent from the research said they would go for option pathway three, three which is yeah. you know I want to take a long term income. Now the FCA have been pretty clear in their expectations on product providers that they must describe riskiness to the consumer, you know, in a way that enables them to assess, you know, whether it's right for them or not. And so, communicating risk in the way that the fund might fluctuate in value, it's it's neither here nor there. I think, yeah, absolutely. I think it's actually incumbent on product providers to indicate to consumers what a sustainable income might be. I mean, that's fairly straightforward to do. And, and you know, there are, my research has shown there are a couple of providers in the market that very much do that. 
Whereas, you know, I guess there's there's 20 providers, I guess, altogether of investment pathways. The vast majority just say, here's a fund and, and this is its risk rating and it, it might go up or down. Sorry to interrupt you. Is this yeah. a, some kind of trajectory, a projection, you know, regularly updated? If you take this much income, this is what your future fund values look like. And you might have a, a you know, declining line that hits zero in 12 years time. That kind of thing. Is that is that the kind of thing yeah. you're talking about? Well, yeah. I mean, it's, it, it is, I'd say, very, very straightforward. I mean, you know, what one of the providers that I look at does this, just shows it in... Who? in oh, so, so that's, um, I mean, the one I'm particularly familiar with is is Reassure. So, you know, people can just Google Reassure and Investment Pathways and and that comes up with a, the, the kind of brochure, so to speak, the, the customer comms that they share with customers. And, and on a single page and, and in a small table, it basically just says, if your fund is this much, and it uses three projection rates. It says this is how long your fund will last for. That, that's not difficult. And, you know, consumers, I think, can grasp that, okay, so my fund might run out. You know what? That's a lot more meaningful than other providers that just say this is your investment fund. It's a risk rating three. It might go up or down. Do you think they should go beyond that to doing kind of annual personalized updates. Dear Mr. Costain, you know, this year your fund value has done this and your income withdrawals have done this. And so here's a revised trajectory for you. Here's a revised projection on what your future might look like based on your current circumstances. Do you think providers should be going that far or does that start to bump up against some advice boundary issues? I think in, in the example I gave you, then that isn't advice, that's providing information. And, you know, that there is no issue with a provider continuing mm. to provide that information to to customers on a regular basis as, uh, but the as nervousness has always come as if you start if you start personalizing it and you know where providers have taken fright in the past is well mm. yeah but if i start personalizing that communication and making about your fund value and your circumstances and your income withdrawal rates and i start giving you those projections that's starting to stray into the territory where the fca might interpret that as advice yeah understandably providers may think that you know they don't want to have that risk of straying into that area you know as i say it can be provided on a generic basis right. and i think that's that, that's got to be the way forward i say i'm rather surprised and disappointed that most providers you know, haven't taken the approach because for a customer that's told you that their outcome-focused objective is taking a long-term income, the risk to them self-evidently is, is the sustainability of income. As I say, it's, it's not the risk that the fund might go up and down. Yeah. And the, the FCA have said on a number of occasions that they are going to review investment pathways during this calendar year, 2022, yeah, I don't, I don't think I can come soon enough. Really, I think this is a this kind of customer comms area is, is, is I think, an area where quite a number of providers have are a little wide of the mark. Do you think IGCs are doing the, the the governance committees are doing a decent job in this space, or should they be doing more to challenge the providers around this? Well, I, I think it it's a little early days, I guess, to think about how the various IGCs, um, investment governance committees, have, have looked at these. They came within their remit just over a year ago, and, and obviously these things were launched in in February of 2021. So the annual reports that IGCs produced for the calendar year 2020, a number of them talked about how their product provider was was going to launch investment pathways and there was some initial assessment but the proof of the pudding in terms of igcs will be the annual reports 
that they produced covering the last calendar year, 2021, when they were launched. Mm. And the deadline for IGC reports now is is the end of September. So uh, we may have to wait until the end of September to see how the IGCs have gone about assessing these. Okay, well, that's something to look forward to. In, 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 <laughs> and, you know, the third week of September is also the most popular period for birthdays. So more children are born <laughs> in the third week of September than any other period of the year. And you know, if you count back, it's clear people have good Christmases. So September is going to be fun for lots of reasons. In the meantime, trust-based schemes, what's going on there? When, when, when are we going to get some kind of pathways in there? What's TPR doing? Yeah, I, I guess the short answer uh, in, in terms of DWP and, and the pensions regulator is not a lot. And I'm really disappointed in that. As we know, customers really haven't got scoobies as to whether they're in a trust-based scheme or a contract-based scheme. They don't know whether they're being regulated by the FCA or by TPR. A few years ago, October, October 2018, we, we got this kind of joint regulatory strategy mm. from the FCA and TPR saying how they're going to work together. And you know, because of the regulation, because they're different regulators, there are going to be slight differences here or there. That, that's just yeah. the, the nature of the beast. But really disappointed in terms of what's happened on non-advised drawdown. I mean, if we look what the FCA have done, over that three-year period on investment pathways, you know, they've run with two consultation papers. Then there was a policy statement, and, and obviously they were implemented and went live in February 2021. TPR, DWP have effectively not done anything at all. That cannot be good for consumers, can it? That they get one set of consumer protection if they happen to be in a contract-based scheme and they get a different set of, of protections if they're in, in a trust-based scheme. I, I think TPR and DWP need to, to get on the case. There's currently, as, as you know, a Work and Pensions Select Committee inquiry at the moment mm-hmm. and the second part of that was about customers accessing their savings. And DWP and TPR got a little bit of a kicking in the oral evidence session. So I am pretty sure this will be a point that gets raised in the the recommendations that the committee publishes, which I expect to be sometime soon, seeing they've uh, concluded it. So yeah, that's a very long way of saying very disappointed that TPR and DWP haven't thought about consumer protection in the same way. Okay, well, that's but that's really interesting because, I mean, that's going to be a challenge for some trust-based schemes. And I know the nature of the whole trust-based scheme sector is changing quite rapidly. You know, the number of schemes is diminishing. There's some consolidation amongst the master trusts. So the world's moving quite fast. But I think it might not be unreasonable to say quite a lot of trust-based schemes are not currently really geared up to do this kind of thing. So from from what you're saying, it feels like there's a challenge coming down the tracks at them. There. Well, the, the challenge is then how really, because I've said a few positive words about investment pathways. I mean, there are some potential issues with them. But but I'm not saying that TPR or DWP have to follow this solution because it's the right solution. The, the bottom line is they've got to work with the FCA and come up with the same solutions. Why, you know, why would you give a customer a different solution depending on what type of scheme they're in when they haven't got a clue which type of scheme they're in anyway? That, yeah, that's and, not, and that's that respect, not good regulation. A DC pension is a DC pension from Absolutely. the consumer's point of view, isn't it? There's, yeah. there's, you know, the, the trust-based distinction will be 
lost on them. I know something else that's caused you concern in the past has been the kind of projection rates used and how the market might be slightly distorted in favour of drawdown at the expense of annuities. So I'd be really interested to hear your thoughts about that and whether you think we're going to see increasing demand for annuities in the next few years, particularly as kind of DB provision starts to drop away. Yeah, so, so one of the things that I've observed and, and, and others have too, and it's quite easy, is just looking at various product providers' websites and how they help customers understand using effectively an online, simple online tool, mm. the income that they can draw from their pension. And what is is clear is that quite a number of these effectively use the FCA illustration rate. So, the central FCA illustration rate is 5%. Yep. And effectively, they, they're using that as a, as a projection rate to give customers an idea of, of how much income they can draw. So, if you take the 5% and, and let's say we'll assume 1% for charges, then that actually shows a customer can take 4% withdrawals in perpetuity and their capital can remain in place. That is not in the current economic environment. Though just, just to, to interrupt briefly, sure. that, that would be a declining income in real terms, wouldn't it? Because there'd it be would. no inflation proofing built into that. But, but you're saying yeah. even, even ignoring inflation, that's, there's some, some slightly heroic assumptions being made there, yeah? Yeah, it, it shows that, as I say, you, you can take 4% without impacting your fund. I mean, of course, your fund will be hopefully growing as well. The other way of looking at it is that if you use that 5% rate, if you take a, a 60-year-old male, you illustrate that they can take more than 6% a year if they're happy to, to effectively eat into the funds. So, run down their fund. Yeah, yeah, so it shows that a 60-year-old male can take more than 6% withdrawals. So kind of up against that, an annuity is never going to look very attractive, is it? So it, it is, yeah, it is a little concerning that, that that practice is happening. It's interesting. I remember some research we did at Hargreaves a few years ago now where we tried to test consumer appetite for fixed income returns. This must have been three or four years ago we did this at the time. So interest rates were, were pretty low already. But at the time, the kind of it felt like once you got above a 7% return, people started to get more interested in handing over their capital in exchange for a guaranteed income for life. And maybe, you know, the, the world we're looking at now at the beginning of 2022 with increasing inflation and maybe interest rates starting to creep up a bit, we'll start to see those annuity rates starting to look a bit more attractive. I've not checked them in recent weeks, but yeah. I'm assuming they're starting to, to creep up again. Yeah. But I, and, and also, I mean, that 7% number also becomes more relevant as people get into their 70s because the rates go up anyway, just because you're older sure. and people's risk tolerances start to decline. And you might get to the point where you just don't want the uncertainty of an investment fund. You just no. like, you know, yeah. just pay me an income for life now. Yeah, you know, I don't, have to, I don't want to have to think about this anymore. So there's that. But I do wonder whether this might be a bit of a transition year in, in that respect because of economic factors and because of some of the things you've talked about in the FCA review of pathways that, that we might see a bit of a reconsideration of what a, a a good income retirement income package might look like. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, as I say, if you are able to illustrate using the 
FCA projection rates an income of greater than 6%, then then that is effectively bias in favour of drawdown over, over annuities. You know, the investment pathways research I talked about showed that 24% of people wanted the pathway two, which is the guaranteed annuity. And, annuity yeah. and and obviously, you know, an annuity, annuities from a consumer perspective with their guaranteed rates of income are an incredibly strong proposition. So uh, again, you know, I, I'm not at all arguing for a market that's dominated by annuities, but it just feels that the, the balance has to be right. And uh, as you say, it's about blending drawdown solutions with annuity solutions rather than necessarily just going with one or the other. Of course, the cynic would say one of the other complications in all of this is if I stick a customer in drawdown, there's a recurring income stream to me there, whether I'm a, a platform or a fund manager or an advisor, if there's an advisor involved, whatever my role, there's a recurring income there because there's an investment fund being managed perhaps for decades to come. If I sell them an annuity, <laughs> they're just going to take their money and go and I'll never see them again. So there is a bit of a commercial bias against annuities in that respect. You know, firms like recurring income. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it builds value in their businesses, doesn't it? Rather than it yeah. being transactional. And, and I think there's, there's little doubt that the remuneration aspects of drawdown, whether you say that be the product providers or, or advisors, is potentially a kind of key factor in terms of you know where we see the business being written. So something else I wanted to just touch on was pension-wise and how that dovetails with the product provider communications. We've talked quite a bit in this conversation about how product providers communicate with their customers. Alongside that, there's the pension-wise service, which is separate, impartial, free. One of the things that struck me when I was reviewing maps last year was that it felt like whilst that impartiality and that separation from the commercial interests of product providers is undoubtedly a very good thing and has great value, the problem is that from the customer communication point of view, there's a bit of a disconnect there. So we've got an initiative now to try and, you know, what they're calling stronger nudge, to try yeah. and push people more towards pension-wise. What's your sense around all that? Do you think the stronger nudge will do it? Do you think there needs to be more collaboration between providers and pension-wise service? I mean, personally, I, I kind of feel that, that what would be good for consumers would be something a lot more radical. Because we live in the industry, we talk about advice, and we mean that in terms of regulated financial advice, and therefore we use guidance for everything else and, and obviously the kind of pension-wise. You know, one of the great things that we as an industry have spent a lot of time and effort on over, over the last 20 years is the kind of behavioural economics and behavioural science side of things. And one of the enduring findings from that is is consumers really don't want to be told on the one hand this, on the other hand that, go figure. What they actually want is reassurance that this is the right decision for them. And therefore, obviously, that then in, in our parlance becomes advice. Be, be, becomes advice. But that is what consumers need and want. We have seen, for example, how the auto-enrolment has reversed the kind of power of inertia by mm. by enrolling people in. We shouldn't forget, as I say, the behavioural aspects to this. So I don't think that guidance serves customers well in terms of what they want and need. And I also think that 
you know, this guidance versus advice has has been on the agenda for for many years, and, and I don't think the solution lies in in constant tinkering. You know, personally, I think we need some radical reform for the benefit of consumers. I think that what we have got in terms of pension wise, yes, it can be improved through stronger nudges and the like. But but I think we're we're fooling ourselves if we think that it'll have a, a kind of dramatic effect. So I mean digressing, you know, slightly we're mm. we're seeing initiatives at the moment about trying to encourage more self employed to save for for their pensions, obviously on the back of the fact that they don't benefit, so to speak, from automatic enrolment. And we've seen quite a lot of initiatives that might help nudge these self-employed to to save a little bit more for their pension. We're fooling ourselves if we think that those nudges are going to have any meaningful effect. As I say, why why in many ways the the behavioural economics and the behavioural science side of things has has taught us a, a lot. We almost kind of turn a blind eye to it sometimes and kind of fool ourselves that these nudges may in some way work where, as I say, that I think there's a, a, a wealth of evidence from the behavioural psychologists that these sorts of nudges are just you know, largely ineffective. So how do you square the circle between, and I'm not disagreeing with what you say there, and I, you know, there's clearly this, this disconnect that exists currently. How do you reconcile that with the FCA's preoccupation with, if I'm telling you what to do, I'm on the hook for that, that's advice. So on the one hand, you're saying consumers kind of want to be told what to do. On the other hand, I've got the FCA saying, well, yeah, but if you do that, that's advice. And then in order to satisfy us that that's competent advice and professional advice and has, has been delivered well, you know, all these layers of costs come in and oh, look, we're back where we started again, where no one's going to take it because it's expensive and, and maybe we don't entirely trust the advisory profession. So, you know, you talked about a radical solution. What does that radical solution look like, Ian? Well, I think that radical solution needs support, needs drive from both the, the regulator and fundamentally the industry. You know, I think what it looks like is giving customers a much stronger steer, reassuring them then that the decision they're about to take appears to be right for them. So it would be crossing the boundary in terms of where it's drawn at the moment, quite obviously, but it doesn't need to necessarily go with the full requirements of regulated financial advice in terms of making a personal recommendation, taking into account the whole of a customer's circumstances. I mean, we've talked for many, many years about you know whether it's called simplified advice or or focused advice, but it hasn't become a reality. And I think you know the the barriers to that are on both sides, both the, the regulator side and and the industry side. And my radical reform is effectively saying actually we we've got to cut through that. We've got to try and find something that is more helpful and meaningful for consumers so that they have a much better reassurance that that it's the right decision for them. That would take quite a lot of political capital. That would take quite a lot of energy and effort to... Absolutely. Because there's a lot of inertia built into the system now, isn't there? Yeah, as I say, it's, you know, I 
realistic in terms of you know where we are where we are and yeah. an effort should made to make whatever nudges there are stronger but i'm saying let's just be realistic about that they are only going to take you so far and in my opinion not very far compared to where we are now and, and you know that's why i feel coming from the consumer side that if there is going to be something that is more meaningful for consumers then yeah radical it would have to be radical it's you know i think the point i'm making is it's just it's not tinkering around the edges it's not oh well just do this little bit here just do this let, let's have a stronger nudge here no it would need to be radical and and i agree with you completely tom that that would be a, a huge effort but personally i think it's something where the the rewards from a customer perspective would be significant Interesting. And I think, uh, and this might be a good point to conclude at, I think there are a lot of people across the industry that would agree with you about that, who feel that all the work the FCA has done around, I mean, so the advice profession is more professional now than it used to be. And that's a good thing. And so, you know, uh, this is not to diminish the good things the FCA has done. However, I think a lot in the industry would agree with you that we've ended up in a place where we're not serving customers well. Or, you know, there are a lot of customers we're not serving well and that to, to move on from here requires something more radical and that requires a bit of a shift in mindset in terms of what we mean by advice and how we regulate that and how we control it. Yeah, I mean, looking at it yeah, a slightly different way, I mean, you know, before auto-enrollment and, and the like, you know, the, the adage that was often used was that pensions were, were sold, mm. not bought. And that's not a disparaging remark in my opinion you know that's uh, just a, a recognition ref- of human nature it's it, absolutely it's, it, yeah absolutely it's because pensions reflect- are not that exciting to a lot of people and they cost money so yeah it, it is it is just a reflection of the the behavioral science i mean obviously we, we've seen that overcome so to speak in terms of auto-enrollment because you know before auto-enrollment you know there were effectively Hundreds of thousands of people effectively turning down free money to the extent that there was a, an employer contribution available to them and they weren't taking it. So it shows that you know, even when there's kind of free money on offer, you know, people don't necessarily make decisions that are good for them. We know that consumers think about what might go wrong in a financial decision that they might make. They fear they'll make a a poor decision and the outcome will be bad. And as a result of that, then they effectively do nothing. You know, we've seen that in terms of, you know, the self-employed and pensions. We've seen it with shopping around for annuities in the past. We're seeing it now with investment pathways because in order to go into an investment pathway, a customer's got to say, well, actually, I'll move out to the investments that I'm in at the, the moment. moment. Yeah. And, and yeah. therefore, they won't. You know, the, the take up across the, industry of, across the industry of investment pathways is incredibly low. And that's not because they're not very good. It's just because of the, the kind of human behavior. I remember working with some behavioral psychologists many years ago, and, and the expression they used was that consumers are paralyzed by anticipated regret. So they anticipate they'll make a decision that they regret and then it then paralyzes them 
into not doing anything at all. So the safer thing is just to do nothing. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. We, just, we, we have just seen that on so many different occasions. And, and I do find it slightly ironic that we recognised it in terms of water enrollment and, and put in place a very powerful policy solution to, to yeah. overcome it, so to speak. And then in all of these other areas, we, we just kind of think, we, we, we almost pretend we don't know that's happening and we stop talking about nudges and giving people pages and pages of information. But that's just not, yeah, that's just not real in terms of the way that we know consumers, you know, act and, uh, and behave. Really interesting. So do you know when the FCA's review of Pathways is going to get kicked off? Well, in terms of Innocent Pathways, they've said a few times that they're going to do a review in this calendar year, 2022. Okay. What One of the things we touched on earlier, Tom, was hmm. that IGCs now need to, to look at investment pathways. So they need to look at how their product provider has uh, implemented and launched investment pathways. But the FCA introduced a new requirement just a couple of months ago in, in October that IGCs have to also do a comparison and publish the comparison of their provider's investment pathways yeah. versus comparable ones on the market. So IGCs are being asked for investment pathways as they are for workplace pensions to do comparisons across the market. So as we said earlier, the, these reports from the IGCs need to be published by the end of September. So it kind of wouldn't surprise me if, if the FCA kind of waited, so to speak, to see what those various comparisons come up with. But with these comparisons, it's going to be a really interesting year for investment pathways in that respect, as, as well as uh, workplace pensions as well. Good. All right. Well, that gives the revolutionaries time to get their troops in order as well. So, Good stuff. Ian, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. Really enjoyed the conversation, Tom. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you did, then do please consider leaving a positive review and maybe even subscribing for future episodes. The sound engineer was Ross Burns. Thank you for listening. <laughs>